Greetings, and welcome to Montessori in Action, a podcast for Montessori educators to remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host, Elizabeth Slade, and let's spend some time listening to what is in the hearts and on the minds of other Montessorians. Our next episode is a conversation with two school leaders of Coral Reef Montessori Academy Charter School who have completed a dissertation entitled An Examination of Culturally Relevant Pedagogy and Anti-Bias, Anti-Racist Curriculum in a Montessori Setting. This research analyzed how culturally relevant pedagogy and anti-bias, anti-racist curriculum operated in three urban public Montessori schools across the United States. In this conversation, the authors unpack their findings and discuss important realizations that arose through the work. Our guests are Dr. Lucy Kensenary-Golden and Dr. Juliet King. Dr. Kensenary-Golden began her teaching career in Harlem, New York at the Central Park East Schools before relocating to Miami, Florida in 1988. Dr. King started teaching for Miami-Dade County Public Schools in 1969 and spent the next five decades in South Florida working as a teacher, school administrator, and community leader. Dr. Kanzanieri Golden and Dr. King are the co-founders and co-directors of the Coral Reef Montessori Academy Charter School located in Miami, Florida. Welcome, Dr. Lucy Golden and Dr. Juliet King. Thank you so much for being on Montessori in Action, the podcast. We are happy to be here. Yes, we are. Wonderful. Our topic today is your newly published dissertation, An Examination of Culturally Relevant Pedagogy and Anti-Bias, Anti-Racist Curriculum in a Montessori Setting. And I was hoping you could start with the origin story of what prompted you to begin this research. I, well, we were in class, we were doing a, we were in class and we had to come up with research in action. For years, Lucy and I had been um, concerned about the disparity in our test scores for African-American students. And we thought that would be a good uh, starting place to try to find out what is the cause, because we realized that um, we couldn't figure out any logical reason why if our teachers were teaching as uh, all students and they were all getting the same curriculum, why was it that some children were achieving where there was another group of students who were not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd like to just add to that that the antecedent for even that um, juncture came when Juliet and I first started the, cl- the school um, and we were a very small school at the time when we had three classrooms and about 63 students. And we noticed a pattern that when students were being brought to the office, um, they were primarily being brought by themselves and they were primarily African-American boys. Mm-hmm. So even though at the time we didn't use the district way of uh, record-keeping um, disciplinary infractions, we kept more like a notebook, we saw a pattern Mm-hmm. And Juliet um, actually was the one that really saw it first and brought it to my attention. And then we decided we were going to really investigate why we were having just one child brought in. And we told the teachers, no, you have to bring 
all children involved in the infraction to the office. Um, and so when we investigated and asked the students open-ended questions without putting words into their mouth and really listening to how things transpired, what we noticed is that um, if the child was brought in, let's just say for because they hit, um, there was so much more undercovering that hit that led to possible exclusion of a child um, or a child being um, uh, an unkind word or an unkind gesture. And that maybe for that particular child, the black child, they might have reacted with hitting. And so that was the focus rather than the underlining cause. And when we revealed to the teachers very often these stories, um, all parties began to take responsibility so it was more of a restorative kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And teachers stopped bringing one child to the classroom. They brought mm -hmm. multiple kids. Again, we um, discovered that when we did this approach, we had less disciplinary problems, or although we perceived to have less, and less were brought to the office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is that the point at which you began doing ABAR work or culturally responsive practices at your school, or had that already started before that? I, I think that was really the beginning, even mm -hmm. before we realized what we were doing. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. What I realized with the students coming to the office, black students would often come into our office offices, and they would be sulking, and they would not want to talk. Mm -hmm. They would just shut down, and it was as though they felt like, hey, there was no need because they were not going to be heard. And as Lucy said, we took the time to listen to make sure that we were getting the truth as, as objectively as we possibly could to make sure that everyone took responsibility for their actions. And as the years went by, we felt that, um, that, that we were achieving this, that things were going really, really well and that there was less... Um, there was less to no uh, discipline disparities in our school. And so you can imagine the surprise when we did our research and found out that this was not the case. Mm -hmm. Because even in our school, when I'm, when I'm observing, there are children, there were children who I knew had um, uh, some discipline issues that were not black. And when we looked at some of the um, data, found out that nobody, that there were black children who were, were brought to the office for infractions, whereas there might have been no, no, no child, no white child brought to the office when I knew full well that there were some discipline problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So th those were the kinds of things that kind of like came to the, uh, to, the, to the surface when we were doing this uh, this research, because even though we were trying very hard, and like you said, this really was the beginning mm -hmm. of trying to be as fair with these students as possible, all students. Mm -hmm. And how did you come to understand that when you uncovered that within your own school? Well, we were doing the, um, the, the archival data mm -hmm. with the um, discipline referrals, uh, we found out that um, 
there were a disproportionate number of uh, black children being brought to the office. Not not necessarily being brought to the office, but being brought, being written, written. up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were being written up. They weren't necessarily being disproportionately being brought to the office. They were just being disproportionately written up for, right. for infractions that other children we're probably getting a slap on the hand and, mm-hmm. you know, make an apology and go back and, hey, don't do that again. Mm-hmm. Whereas they felt that this might have been something that needed to be written up. Mm-hmm. So so the part about being brought to the office was had shifted and changed right. so that the black children weren't necessarily being brought to the office. But it, it didn't change the inner experience within the classroom of who was being written up for discipline issues and who was where it was letting being let slide. Right. I think that that was the the big surprise because on the surface, and I think that what this study did is it dug deep, right? Mm -hmm. It it went Mm -hmm. beyond the surface. On Mm -hmm. the surface, there were a lot of um, perceptions, if you will, that were favorable to our school, to the other two schools and certain, you know, from certain parents, from certain teachers, um, from certain uh, administrators. But when you dug deeper, Right. Um, We saw these uh, trends still very disturbingly um, alive. And Mm -hmm. for us, it was a shocker because we thought we were working so hard to dispel these things, to get rid of these things. Mm -hmm. And yet it was still, um, unfortunately, was still there. And of course, we should have done more looking at that data on a close basis. But because we weren't suspending kids or we didn't do those kinds of actions, we were thinking, oh, they're, they're okay. But as, as uh, Juliet said, they were still being written up. So tell me a little bit about the research across the three schools. Your school was only one of three that the dissertation was written about. Do you want to share a little bit about the other two? Well, we started, we picked, um, it was not easy to um, find schools that were, um, and which was kind of also surprising too, because sort of when we came on board, um, as um, Montessorians in public school who have been around, you know, since the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. We thought, um, since the late 80s, and really early 90s, we thought, oh, we're going to find a bunch of schools that are going to be involved in this work right. because we were turned on to Montessori for social justice. But what we found was that when we tried to elicit schools for the study, there really weren't a lot of schools that were meeting the criteria, which is a strong commitment um, to this kind of pedagogy, CRP, cultural relevant pedagogy, and anti-bias, anti-racist practices that were willing to participate in the study, at least a two-year commitment Mm -hmm. with 50% of students of color, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. uh, we had talked to, uh, you know, Dr. Debs, you know, she gave us a few names, but we elicited schools in, in MSJ conference when we first went in 2018 and uh, we were able to get get two schools, one school that was already very known for this work and another school that was a public school in the West Coast. So we had a school on the East Coast, um, the, the central uh, United States and on the West Coast. And, you know, pretty much they had very similarities. Um, we obviously were the school that had been around the longest. We were going into our 20th year. Uh, the school on the West Coast was a little bit um, about halfway mark. They were about 10 years and the one in the Midwest was uh, less than, I think it was on their eighth year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners who haven't yet read your dissertation, although it will be posted on our website for them to read, um, the questions that you were exploring at the three schools across the two years. 
Well, while Dr. King is looking for the actual questions, I can tell you what we were what we were trying to do is really examine attitudes, right? Yeah. Really examine yep. perceptions, if you mm-hmm. will, mm-hmm. from parents, um, from teachers, and from uh, administrators as CRP and ABAR pertained uh, to students of color, right? And looking at outcomes. How, how is this really, what, what are your perceptions w- with this work? How do you define it? What does it look like? And how do you think it, if anything, what kind of relationship does it have for students of color, for their outcomes? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That is really what the gist of the questions, you know, we were trying to ask were. Okay, the questions as we verbatim were, how does CRPA-BAR curriculum operate in three urban public Montessori schools, and what are some best practices? That was one question. Second question was, how does CRPA-BAR curricula in Montessori schools affect parents' perceptions? Three, in urban Montessori schools, Utilizing CRPA bar curricula, what are the connections between teachers' perceptions and the outcomes for their students of color? And four, how does implementing CRPA bar in Montessori schools impact behavioral referrals, suspension rates, and academic outcomes such as proficiency levels for high-stakes testing and reading and mathematics for students of color? What are some of the challenges? Those were the questions that we we, we posed to uh, teachers and administrators and parents to try mm-hmm. to elicit exactly what was going on, how were they operating in those schools, and how was it affecting the outcomes for students? Mm-hmm. And I wish we had time to talk deeply about each of those, but I would love it if the two of you would talk a little bit about what your findings were for the last one especially given your own experience in your own school of how does that work affect behavioral referrals and academic achievement? Well, one of the findings was that teachers' perceptions were that CRP impacted students of color primarily through uh, emotional, social-emotional growth and limited ap- uh, academic outcomes. And many non-black parents... Uh, many non-black teachers' perceptions of students of color included deficit uh, thinking, so that was how that affected it. And uh, can I add to that? Yeah, go ahead. So that that um, perception that that uh, that we came up with. So two of the schools, um, there was really not um, a consistency between the perceptions and the outcome, right? Because um, mm-hmm. our school, for example, and another school. The perceptions were more favorable. They were more positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess parents didn't really think there was uh, deficit thinking in both our school and the school in the Midwest. Uh, parents felt that, for the most part, their students were supported um, both emotionally and academically to the best of the ability. However, with the school on the West Coast, there was um, an alignment between what the data said and what the perceptions were, right? Mm -hmm. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of parents in that particular school um, uh, that were very negative, uh, parents of color that felt very, very um, disregarded that they felt that their their children were not um, treated the same, that their their, um, needs were not being met, that there Mm -hmm. was many biases that were just dismissed, ignored, 
um, and that many black parents had left the school. Mm -hmm. um, there was instances of adultification um, that parents had witnessed. And this was pretty much the sentiment. Can, can you, so not to interrupt you, but can you just slow down? I loved that term when I read it, but can you just explain to our listeners what adultification is and how that happens, particularly with black boys? So it was very common for um, Juliet and I to see in that particular school um, black children being disciplined in the hallways, in the classrooms. And we have several anecdotal examples of that happening. Um, but one was very powerful because it came from a Latinx parent, you know, who identified as a brown person. Um, and I say that because with Latinx, that can get tricky, especially if you're um, from Miami. But anyway, um, this person uh, had said that there was a black boy in her child's class who she had observed was big for his age. And, you know, children, when they're growing, it's a known fact that sometimes if they're growing rapidly, um, their physical movements may cause them to be clumsy, bump into mm -hmm. things. That's, that's just basic biology mm -hmm. and that often he would do things. However, this white parent was often complaining and using the word bullying. My child is being bullied. My, mm -hmm. my female girl child is being bullied. And this little boy was, according to this parent, very sweet, big for his age, a little clumsy, but not an aggressive child in the least bit. But all of his actions that if he accidentally bumped into this girl were interpreted as he was a bully. Aggressive. And this is adultification. Mm -hmm. this, this, this concept, you know, is really traced back to um, slavery. Um, and, you know, um, it has its, its historical roots in, in slavery and how, you know, black slaves um, were just not considered human. And so, um, in a sense, you know, what might be uh, okay for a non-black child to behave in a certain way, the black child is now viewed as mm -hmm. an adult. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we have examples with this, all these children that young men uh, that were shot, little kids, Trayvon Martin here in Florida, you know, 16, 17 years old, having Skittles, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, these are all constant examples of adultification. And recently there's been a lot of that with girls mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's when you see children as being older than they are, being more able to take responsibility for their actions. Whereas if you have a 10-year-old child who is black, if she does something, then she is seen as being more in control. Even at our school, we see that. Um, there are children, mm -hmm. when, when they do things, they are saying that they know better, black students, and that they are doing it for um, attention. I get a lot of that when, when something happens. Whereas when yeah. there's a child who is not considered a child of color, and like uh, Lucy said, in Miami, it's a little tricky because most uh, Latinx see themselves as white instead of as people of color, that th these children are, are seen as they can't help themselves. We need to do something to help them. Uh, uh, we, mm -hmm. We'll help them to, so that they, they don't do that. And this is how we need to see all children, even down to the young man who did the, the, the shooting. I hear on, on TV... This guy, who, the guy who shot the two people at the uh, at that uh, um, protest, they keep calling him. He's mm -hmm. a seventeen-year-old kid. Well, if there, if he was a seventeen-year-old black child, he would be a seventeen-year-old man. This is the the the, uh, the the person. You know what I'm talking. They I w they wouldn't keep referring mm -hmm. to him yeah. as a kid. We all know that anybody who's mm -hmm. seventeen, yes, he is a kid, and that is fine. We understand mm -hmm. that he mm -hmm. is not fully. Um, 
mature. But Develop. but that mm-hmm. the same the same but that the black child has the same level of maturity at seventeen as that white kid. So we're gonna have to learn mm-hmm. how to treat all children as who they are children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add something that Dr. King really brought to light, um, and I felt like it was really so insightful when we were having our discussions. Um, because again, I want to go back to our school. Um, not that that was the only school, but uh, Juliet, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because I really felt like that was like a light bulb, at least for me. And I really thought that was great. Well, what happened was, like Lucy said, at our school, at the time that we did this uh, study, we were also going through uh, uh, modern, um, accreditation with the uh, with uh, American Montessori Society. So, of course, our teachers have to be trained. Most and so, all, in fact, for years now, most of our teachers have been trained. But uh, there's always somebody who is like in training. But but I'd say majority of our teachers are almost uh, uh, fully trained. Ninety nine percent. And uh, our parents at our school, when when we were uh, when they were being interviewed about how they they perceived the uh, the teachers and whatnot, they felt that these that there was their children were getting a really good education and that the teachers were really, um, there was no bias, there was no anti-racism, that when they came onto the campus, that it was like a, 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 a different world. They were very, mm. very, very positive about our school. And, I, and then when we looked at those uh, referral data, we said, hey, that's not the case. With this is this the way it mm-hmm. appears, and so when we were talking mm-hmm. about the only thing I can I can say is that by being Montessori trained, Montessori is a fantastic program. It, I, I just think that I've been in a traditional school, and I've been I haven't been into a lot of the other um, uh, pedagogies of teaching, but between traditional and Montessori, it was like a light bulb going off when we did Montessori, and in Montessori mm-hmm. they do they will teach they tell you that you go through a, a transformation as a teacher. You have to learn mm-hmm. how to have a reverence for, for children, how to really appreciate the potential that's within those children. And when you're doing that, you also learn how to slow down, how to speak mm-hmm. to children, how to speak in a respectful tone, because that you're the model. So you want your children mm-hmm. to re- be respectful, so then you have to be respectful. So then, mm-hmm. even though they come off sounding as though they are respectful to children and that they really do appreciate, that is just the, the training of how to speak to children. It doesn't really go down into, into the subconscious mm-hmm. as to how you actually... And I, when Lucy and I were talking about that, I used the term, like, you talk to your dog. You you know you you, mm. you pet your dog up you know it's a good dog good dog but you don't expect that dog you don't expect that dog to to read mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you don't expect or to do a, a lot of things that um, that you could do so they have they they don't have high and our test scores it also it's the same thing we don't they don't have high expectations for these children or they don't feel that these mm. children deserve and I'm not talking just mm. about our I'm just talking about in general. They feel that these children are going to be like um, uh, practical nurses, or I'm just using things. Or they're going—they're not going to be uh, registered nurses. They're not going to be doctors. Uh, they're not going to be lawyers. Mm. They might be a, a, a sanitation worker. They might uh, clean houses. Or 
They might work in a hotel, but they're not a clerk in a store. So they don't push them and, and try to get them into these high math classes. They don't try to get them to the top of the language arts classes. They, they just don't put the, that effort into those students. And that's kind of that deficit theory thinking that, that uh, teachers um, exposed mm-hmm. when we were, we were, um, when we were doing these interviews. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is really important what you're saying. I want to link to Dr. Montessori um, reminding part of the transformation of the Montessori educator is that she charges us to see the child who's not yet mm-hmm. there. And what you're saying is that implicit bias is um, affecting what teachers are seeing in the potential, the unmanifest potential of their students, and that there's a difference between what they might expect of a white child and imagine for their future as there is for black and brown children. Is that a fair recap of what you mm-hmm. just shared? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I, you know, just wanted to concur to what Juliet said. And I think we also reiterated, it's not that people who are doing this work don't have the intentions um, right. to really want to reach children, but it's so, it's so challenging because they're, you know, how do you manage the subconscious? How do you transform the subconscious? Even if you, uh, for the most part, are able to acquire some changes in your personality through the transformation of the teacher and try to let go and use observation more, those biases are so embedded in our society and in our culture, and the anti-blackness is such a huge... um, disease, mm-hmm, if you will, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is part of our history, that it's very, very um, hard and difficult work to deconstruct, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really what makes it challenging. Uh, because we all know that teachers that are in Montessori, for the most part, especially in these schools, they, they wanted to, if they really didn't think that this work was important, perhaps they would go to another Montessori school or, you know, go somewhere else. But we think for the most part, you know, Everyone had good intentions. Right. Um, it's just good intentions and even popular slogans or even um, joining groups or coming to podcasts or listening to podcasts or going to workshops is not going to necessarily come out to making this huge transformation mm-hmm. of what it takes as a society um, mm-hmm. to make this change. Yeah, I think that even from the beginning, we understood that what Lucy is saying, that this, this was part of the problem. That's why when we did this study, we came from a critical race theory type of... of um, that, that was the theory, that, the theoretical framework that we used, is that racism is all, all around us. It's just, such, as she said, such an integral part of our, our country, and really it's probably the world, that we, we, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to even see. It's so, so close to us that you don't even see it. And like she says... The people who work at our school—they're not racist. We, I mean, we—it's just a part of who we are as a, as a culture, as a, as, a, as a United mm-hmm. States, and it's something that we need to change to try to make sure. Because hey, think about how many people that we are, how many they, we could have had a, a, a cure for cancer, and, and I mean, this—I'm just using <laughs> that. As, I mean, no, if you if you mm-hmm. gave average all the children who have not had the education that and the push and the drive to see the potential. You don't know what you're missing out on. You really mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I imagine having these findings that you're working in three schools that were intentionally taking on this issue, intentionally doing the work of anti-bias, anti-racist, that still the results um, showed that there was discrepancy in the disciplinary data and not a big shift in terms of academic achievement. No, it's the same type of thing, same, it's, it's, it's no different. I mean, I think that, you know, we can say that there are some um, tools and best practices that when we were looking at successful classrooms in all three schools, there are things that people can identify that can say, yes, um, these are good practices. This will help. Mm -hmm. Certainly not going to make things worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's not enough. Uh, studies, you know, for example, this one, we didn't replicate this study and there's not enough studies that have been replicated with us. We just, we're in the beginning stages. So um, there is there is possible connections if we identify these best practices and they're replicated with fidelity mm -hmm. and some of the things that we really identified that could make a possible a school stronger that, you know, that possibly we will see in the future a shift, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why there's more research, especially researchers of color like ourselves, you know, that um, represent the global majority. I think it's important for us to really, this is the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So we're hoping more researchers come out of this um, and have this opportunity to, to really take this work even farther mm -hmm. because... Uh, there is hope. Otherwise, we must, right. might as well all hang, you know, hang this up right now. Um, and, and, and there is hope. And, and even, you know, as a person who, uh, when I got into Montessori in, in the early 90s, um, and I would go to, like, these national conferences, and I would be like, well, I don't really relate to any of these people. I don't really see anything that's applicable to me. Mm -hmm. um, after not going for many years and then, like, going a couple of years ago to Philadelphia and I saw you know so many more Montessorians of color there I saw more things happening and then from that point on it's just been you know accelerating mm -hmm. that that gives me hope that mm -hmm. gives me hope that you know things are going to change we see the national organizations taking a, a more um, critical stance a more policy oriented stance and I think mm -hmm. our research talks about that, that you have mm -hmm. to do two things. You have to, you have to have academic, you have to have an academic approach, but you also have to have a systemic approach if you really want to see the fruition of your school moving towards a liberated type of um, school. Wonderful. Can you talk a little bit more about those two components? Well, one was a curriculum approach, and the other one was a systemic type of approach. But they all had elements of both in, in, in each one of those approaches. Like at our school, we, we, we actually concentrated through the curriculum uh, and using uh, literature. And at the other school, they used the uh, Ashoka Changemakers. So they had like, uh, that was, it was kind of, it was, the, the curriculum was that they would be, that's how, we were trying to uh, make change and make children uh, to teach uh, anti-racist, anti-bias values. And at the other school, I'm quite sure they used um, uh, some of the same things that we used, but it wasn't, we didn't see a focused type of curriculum. Uh, I think they like be lessons and maybe use different um, avenues to, to teach anti-bias, anti-racist. But what they actually focused on was teacher training and not only 
uh, teacher training, but changing not only the atmosphere within the school, but within the community. So it was, mm-hmm. it, that, was, mm-hmm. that was where we, we call that, we saw that as being more systemic. Mm-hmm. And that's how that worked. And we think that in order for, now, it's, that didn't say that we, we had plenty of, um, of training, too, with our teachers. But in the, uh, in, in the school that did this systemic type of um, anti-bias, anti-racist, they had uh, the uh, vocabulary to, to, to actually uh, engage in conversations to discuss it, I guess, in, in a, in a, to make it feel a safe um, atmosphere to have um, safe and courageous conversations about race and what was going on, not in the, in the school, but what was going on in the community and the world, and, and gave the mm-hmm. children um, the language to advocate for themselves. But see, we had some of that in our school and the other school, too, where children were becoming aware. They, everybody was becoming more aware of, of racism and the effects that it has on, uh, on, on, on their lives, on each individual's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed in the dissertation that some of the key words that came up when you were talking about next next level were um, system awareness, policies, teacher support, funding, future leadership, and Montessori ABAR training as thoughts for what could bring this to the next level. Um, and I'm thinking in particular about teacher support, and my background is in Montessori coaching, and I'm thinking a lot about that as a element of what you were talking about earlier, Dr. Golden, about how are we working with that full transformation of the Montessori adult if there isn't that awareness on the part of the teacher to begin with. Um, And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about coaching um, support for teachers as they work through some of these pieces to actualize the ABAR curriculum rather than having it be, you know, one element at the at the surface that doesn't necessarily penetrate the the thinking or the the actions of the people within the classroom. Well, what I was thinking about the same thing today and I was thinking that um, as a Latinx woman, you know, who who's light, who has, you know, close proximity to whiteness and working with Juliet as an African American woman, um, we had to go through our own transformation. Uh, mm. And part of that was really letting, not just letting go of ego, but having those same kind of courageous conversations and building trust, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I envision that we, we came up with a very basic framework, um, a tool that we sort of adapted, um, an ABAR tool, CRP ABAR tool that would kind of identify the very basic um, practices of a teacher all the way to someone who would be highly effective. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a work in progress, but I think that it has to be someone who another teacher trusts, mm-hmm. who there is a relationship of trust. Mm-hmm. Because um, when you're talking about things as as deep, as fundamental as your own biases, right, which really kind of touch at the core of your humanity, uh, people, all, call, all sorts of um, things stir up, right? Mm-hmm. For, for people mm-hmm. who are not black, um, fragility comes up, right? right. And mm-hmm. so it's going to, you know, we want to get past that. The whole purpose of the tool is to be able to use it to help yourself 
identify. So if you have a tool that, for example, is examining in a class discussion, how many times are you picking light-skinned children over dark-skinned children? How many times are you redirecting light-skinned children over, you know, if I come and I do that, yes, I could get information and I could do it, or I could even, you know, do it without the the teacher really knowing. But I, I envision teachers creating partnerships of someone, and really, ideally, it would be the assistant in the classroom, that Mm -hmm. they trust, Mm -hmm. that they feel safe with, that Mm -hmm. they feel like they can make a mistake and no one's going to judge them. Mm -hmm. And that that tool could be exchanged between perhaps the assistant and the teacher. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to the whole thing about assistant and teacher, because the power dynamics of that is also steeped in white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? When you have mm-hmm. an assistant and a teacher, mm-hmm. that's a very um, sort of Eurocentric concept in, a, in, a, in, in a many ways that can also perpetuate power dynamics. So we've noticed in our school where we've had partnerships that were people of different races where it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And we've had partnership, and for that very reason, mm-hmm. the the the... the the black assistant was feeling um, very much, um, you know, the racism, the, 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 the microaggression from the white teacher or the Latinx teacher. Mm-hmm. Now, we've also had many situations where that isn't the case, you know, where we have cross-racial uh, um, relationships between teachers and assistants, and we have black teachers too you know, with Latinx assistants and white assistants. So we, we have the whole gamut. But I think the, the key for something like that to work is to have a, a, a par- partner in the classroom, ideally a, an assistant where you build that trust mm-hmm. and they could help you and you could help each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then at some point, of course, the reflection to the yeah. administration is important because we want to know your journey. We don't mm-hmm. want you to just keep that journey to yourself. You don't have to get into the details, but mm-hmm. we want to know, and we're going to see it, right? We're mm-hmm. going to see it, but we also want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. So I think that that component, the reflective part of, of yeah. how you grew, we, they could share with us. Mm-hmm. And the daily kind of like, how am I doing, would be ideally with the, with the assistant, provided there is that trust. Mm-hmm. That puts a whole new meaning on everyone in the school is coached and being coached, that we are all partnering up in this transformation piece. Yeah, wonderful. Would you talk a little bit about best practices that you saw across the three schools and how impactful that can be? Well, I think like um, we were both saying before, um, the even the the West Coast school that had a lot of you know uh, criticisms and, and and we saw a lot of microaggressions and a lot of disparities with our own eyes and what we heard from parents, they still you know when they did use the Ashoka curriculum and they did um, allow the children to research folks of color that have made differences. Um, heroines that have been mm-hmm. there who have really been on the front lines to do things and make systematic change and celebrating that, those are all examples, right? Um, and, and just also the general respect and diversity of different populations, having the parents come in and share. Those are best practices of cultural relevant pedagogy that are sustaining, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That continue to expand as we expand our understanding of different people because it's about not negating those differences. So that's one one really good best practice. Everyone pretty much 
um, you know, the classroom that we went to, uh, the teacher was able to use some of the cultural lessons and timelines and expand them into non-Western, non-European perspectives. So we saw some timelines that were uh, Asiatic. We saw some timelines that were from different parts of Africa. And same thing with her peace table. You know, it was inclusive of different faiths that were not um, necessarily um, uh Christian Judaic, right? So that that's one way, right? So you can use the cultural lessons um, and these celebrations. In the school um, that we saw in the um, Midwest, um, I think that, again, those systemic, having the community um, connection is really important because they very much were examining their recruitment practices. They were examining um, gentrification, whereas the West Coast, there was a tremendous amount of gentrification going, and that was also part of the the power imbalance in that community and in that school. Being very proactive with systems and with um, and with policies in the board and in the school is very very important. Um, I think that um, in our school, one of the best practices was literature, and that dates yeah. back to the Freedom Schools, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that's not our invention. That happened, you know, during the civil rights and uh, the voter sit-ins and all of that and really using literature. And Marian Elman did it in her um, Child Defense Fund after-school program. Literature is a way. And we, we know that storytelling is an important thing in Montessori. So using those experiences, and we do like two-year studies, right? And currently we did African-American in the beginning. Now we're doing uh, Latinx and we'll be moving into Native um, American studies and so on and so forth. So literature is a great tool to be able to do that, provided you can also really dig deep into systems because a lot of schools use literature, Black History Month, Hispanic Heritage Month, but are they really digging deep into systems of oppression and teaching children to think critically? We're not trying to tell people how they should think. We're providing tools for them to be critical thinkers. They will, in a very natural way, make their own decisions, as many of our former students have and alumni have, in terms of what they perceive to be justice, right? That's a really important practice, we believe. Um, So those kinds of things, I think, are very powerful. I think we also, as Montessorians, need new ways to assess our students because the reality is that these these tests, these standardized tests, all it keeps doing is amplifying um, opportunity gaps and making children believe that they can't succeed. And they don't even align themselves with with real, um, true um, neurological or pedagogy that really supports developmental stages for children. And they're culturally biased. They were created to sustain um, and to promote white supremacy to begin with. They they date back to those kinds of practices. So we've got to we've got to start coming up with tools that are more Montessori and more ABAR oriented. And that's another huge field that should be explored. Yeah, we've we've got our work cut out for us, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much, both of you, for taking your time to to talk today. Thank you. Yes, we appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, we hope that um, anyone who's interested in the work and wants to reach out to us or any young um, scholar there, you know, that from the global majority that wants to say, well, how do, how do you get started? Which we're here to, to really offer a helping hand, you know. So anyone who's interested, you know, please contact us on our website um, and we'd be happy to help. 
terrific. And those resources will be on the Montessori in, uh, Public Montessori in Action website on the Montessori in Action podcast page for you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Our show is a project of Public Montessori in Action, elevating voices in the community to forward the mission. Our host is Elizabeth Slade. Our producer is Isaac Price Slade. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with others. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.